Well, I don't know about you, but uh, we don't have uh, AC in, in our place, which means that on these days that we're hitting, you know, 26, 29, it feels, uh, feels pretty hot. It's pretty warm in our little place. And uh, we got a call at uh, 10th, you know, from Mount Pleasant Building this last week from the city of Vancouver saying, hey, will your church be open as a cooling shelter for people in the city who need a place to just go and, you know, cool off who are too hot? And the sad news was like, no, because we also don't have AC at the 10th building. We don't have a way to kind of provide that same coolness. But it's a, it's a massive need when you're feeling like the, the heat of the day, you know, the, the weariness of, of that, that oppressive warmth. You got to figure out how to, how to cool down. I looked up uh, online, what's, what's the hottest recorded temperature? You know, if, if 26 and 29 feels pretty hot, like what's the, the worst that it gets? Apparently... 56 degrees is the, uh, the highest temp ever recorded. That was in Furnace Creek in, in California. But a lot of climate scientists are saying that, you know, the, the world's getting hotter. Prepare for more heat waves across Canada, more fires that like you see, you know, on the front pages of the paper here in Canada and places like, like Greece. Um, but there's a, a great need in, in all of us to say, all right, there is something about that outside temperature that feels, you know, threatening. And why is it so bad? Because it has an effect on our internal temperatures, you know, when you get that sense of your cooking uh, inside. The average human is meant to, you know, be happy at around 37 degrees. If you get warmer than that, you feel quite uncomfortable. You know, we call that, you know, a, a fever hitting the, hitting the place. But there are other ways we can feel this discomfort of, of internal heat, not just through temperatures around us. According to psychologists, when you feel a sense of deep anger or a sense of deep emotion, it can actually change your internal temperature. Maybe you feel this. You get actually kind of like sweaty if you're really angry or you kind of think, hey, it's getting hot here. It's just me. It's like, no, it is. It is just you. It's, it's your emotional reaction to an intense moment. We're going to look today at the story of, of Jonah. This will be our, our last vignette uh, of four, but this prophet who is really interesting. The book of Jonah is incredibly unique in the whole Bible. There's no other book that's quite like it. It's a book that's really about a prophet. There's not much of his actual prophecy, just a five-word sermon that he offers to some people he doesn't like. But there's this fascinating picture of his internal world as it progresses through these four little snapshots, four little chapters. So in case you um, are here for the first time, I'll give you a quick review of what sets up for today for that final chapter in the uh, book of Jonah. So in chapter one, God calls Jonah to go and preach to the baddies, people he doesn't like, people of Nineveh. And he says, no thanks, I'll go the opposite way. He gets swallowed by a fish as he's running away on the ocean and ends up in the very bottom of the sea in the belly of a whale. Chapter 2, he prays from that belly of the whale saying, God, please have mercy. Give me one more go, one more chance. Like, let's do this again. True enough, God has mercy. And the, the fish spews Jonah up onto the beach, and he this time accepts God's call. Goes to Nineveh, but he's still a bit grumpy. He preaches a, a five-word sermon and then goes to kind of 
huff off and watch things kind of go bad. But that five-word sermon has a big effect. And everyone in Nineveh repents. All the people, the king, all the animals, they all turn towards God. And so God relents and God has mercy. So chapter four now we'll see kind of Jonah's response to like this great drama. Having gone through all these movements, how does Jonah process what's happened? Now you might think that Jonah is perhaps the only successful prophet in the whole story of scripture. Prophets are often, you know, unheard. People ignore them, push them aside. Jonah might be the only person who gets the job done right. And let's see how he responds. Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And then it ends. It's a very strange end to this long drama. So I thought for today we'll have a simple kind of map for kind of figuring out how do we hold this ancient, complicated um, story of Jonah. So here's two little markers for us. Mad prayer, when you pray just out of being angry. And maddening prayer, when your prayer makes you feel like you're getting disoriented and confused. All right, so let's go from the very top here of chapter 4. Now, yet no one has ever had this kind of success like Jonah has. The entire city of Nineveh repents. Imagine this. If Billy Graham gave an altar call and the whole city came forward and they all brought their pets. That's the kind of response that Jonah has here. It's meant to be this, this superfluous, amazing response. And so you'd think, you know, maybe Jonah will see, wow, all these people coming to turn from evil towards God. Maybe that's a good thing. But for Jonah, no. 
He's furious. He's in a rage. It says this, to Jonah, this repentance, God's mercy, all seemed very wrong, and he became angry. That, that word there, very wrong, is interesting in that that's what kind of the same word starts this whole drama. When, when God says to Jonah, hey, the people of Nineveh have acted in a very wrong way before me. It's that same word. And now through this whole drama, Nineveh has addressed their very wrongness. But it hasn't just gone away. Now Jonah's taken it and thought, fine, I will sit with this very wrongness. It may not be on Nineveh, but now it's on me. The word in, in Hebrew also then for his, his anger is literally the word burning. He's, he's inflamed. You know, his internal temperature is, is skyrocketing. He's, he's stewing and he's, he's boiling over. It's a, it's a great kind of poetic description of what it feels like when you're in a rage, when you're really upset. Why is he so angry? The big reveal in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. This little prayer here, it's a very angry, uh, mad sort of prayer, but it's fascinating. It's a great battle of self-disclosures, uh, which really is a great picture to think about what is prayer meant to be? Perhaps a battle of self-disclosures. You really see a picture of Jonah's heart. Now we kind of have the curtain revealed. Like, why did he flee from God in the first place? Was he scared about being a prophet to his enemies that he's going to be beaten up or killed? No. He doesn't want God to have mercy on the baddies, the people who are violent and don't deserve it and should be punished. And when God does have that mercy, he's, he's just in a rage. He says this line about God, saying, God, you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, bound to love, a God who wants from sin and calamity. Almost in a disdainful kind of throwaway line at God. But this is meant to be a, the greatest disclosure of God to the world. If, if you have one line to summarize the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew Bible, it's probably this line. This is, this is the great disclosure when God says to people, this is who I am. And it gets repeated, you know, dozens, a dozen time, uh, times throughout the scripture. The first time we see this as the name of God being revealed, it's when Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people are all below, and they're waiting and they're waiting, and they're waiting. I think, you know what? Nothing's happening. Maybe Moses is dead. Maybe God's brought in us. Let's build a, a golden calf as a picture of, of God for us to build to kind of have more of a, a concrete solution. Moses comes down and sees the golden calf, and we think, oh no. Will, will all of God's people now be destroyed. The first thing God says, it's like, I'm the Lord of God, no other gods. Don't make any idols. And sure, one and two just got a strikeout on the first go, 30 seconds into the plan. But 
what does God do? Does he say, all right, now it's going to be plague time, just like in Egypt, it's coming your way? No, he reveals his name. I am a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The Hebrew there also for slow to anger is pretty cool. It literally means long in the nostrils. So like if you think about kind of getting hot and kind of burning with anger, the, the Hebrew imagination pictures like your nose kind of flaming up and getting all kind of red with heat. Well, God has a big nose and he is long in the nostrils, which means that as like the, the fumes start to come, the anger burns slow through his nose. It's kind of a funny picture, but think about God as a big-nosed God when you pray, that he's slow to anger. He's not a hothead, seeing like, oh, i got to zap that, i got to zap that. He's slow. He's got an anger delay tendency. What does that mean? It means that he's, he's warm, he's generous, he's open-hearted, you know, not kind of out there in this impulsive reactionary um, position. Now, we have that picture of, of God through his name being revealed. And then Jonah reveals his own heart in this too, that he's angry at God's mercy, thinks that it's not fitting and inappropriate. Jonah's name means dove. It means peace. Jonah's not quite living into his name. He's the, the son of Amittai, meaning the son of faithfulness. It's meant to be a bit of a joke. This guy who's so angry at God's mercy is named Peace, son of faithfulness. It's, it's meant to be a kind of a, a great, ironic sort, sort of picture. Um, and so you have these two vignettes, these two disclosures. God's abundant mercy, his big-nosedness, and Jonah's impulsive rage and his, uh, his anti-name, how he's not a person of peace not a person of faithfulness. What's that response to these two disclosures of persons? Well, for Jonah, he wants to die. He thinks that he's just had enough. The world is too bad. This picture of mercy does not fit with what he wants to see in the world. Now, it's awkward as modern readers to know how to approach that. Like, should we feel... Like, really bad for Jonah? Like, is he, is he suicidal out of his anger? And we should try and, you know, offer some kindness? Again, this is meant to be a bit of a, a joke, a bit of a tease. So there's a writer named David Plotz that says this. This is a distinctive Jewish form of complaint. The kill me now joke is one of the great foundations of modern Jewish humor the mother who sticks her head in the oven when her son drops out of medical school. So it's, it's meant to be kind of, again, like provocative. It's not meant to kind of make you have an alarm of saying, oh, we should probably have Jonah call a, a helpline for support. It's meant to kind of tease us of this guy is just done. He's, he's got no outs, no possible ways to, to find a, a way forward. Now, the great irony again in this is that we just saw Nineveh, the most wicked people on the face of the planet, being spared of death by a divine mercy. And now Jonah is asking God, God, in your great mercy, just wipe me out. Like, please, just end it. It's like, this is the irony. Great judgment has just been 
restrained. And Jonah's saying, okay, I'll, I'll take a bit of that. Please just go ahead. I'm ready to exit. There, there is a long prophetic history of people like Job and Moses and Elijah all having like this great self-crisis, wanting to exit, wanting to die, despairing of life as they try and live in this prophetic task. It's a, probably a, a good little clue for us that, hey, the Christian life is not meant to be a, a walk in the roses where there's bliss upon bliss and you just laugh at the daisies and the butterflies. There is real pain to encounter. We, we happen to worship in front of a cross. So when we hit things in life that aren't going well, our response should not be like shock and surprise, but oh yeah. This is our storyline of people who gather together. There's going to be pain in the world, pain in our own lives. Now, what do we do with it? This is part of my, my, maybe my hang up about life in Vancouver sometimes is that it's really hard to have like an honest self-disclosure. Jonah, as grumpy and upset as he is, he just lets it, lets it loose. He says, here's where I'm at. You know, it's easy for us to keep each other all in polite boundaries. You know, put on a brave face. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm also fine. Oh, great. And we both go off and cry in the corner. But it's, it's just simpler to think, I don't know you that well for this kind of disclosure. And then we perpetuate that pattern and think, wait, who, who really knows me? Who, who sees kind of those, those filters taken away in my life? Prayer for the Christian is meant to be our, our practice place for the unfiltered life. Jonah gets that part really right. Here I'm laid bare before you, God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean in. Here's my unfiltered thoughts about who you are and who, who I am. God then responds to Jonah, to this self-disclosure um, kind of paradox, in a pretty interesting way. He says this, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Is it right for you to be angry? Think for a minute. How do you, how do you hear that question? How does that feel if God were to offer that sort of a question to you. For Jonah, he certainly does not appreciate it. It's not a, a helpful question for him. It feels cruel. Keep in mind, though, God is not mean-spirited. He's not trying to offer a, a bit of a tease here to Jonah. The whole story is that God is rich in mercy, slow to anger, and he relents from sending judgment. So if we hear that word first, hey, uh, is there right for you to be angry as a judgmental kind of like poke? Maybe, just maybe, we've got the wrong picture of the very heart of God. God's not coming to try and just poke at us and be a moral evaluator, but to show us wave after wave of mercy. Now, I think that in, in Hebrew, that question 
is it right for you to be angry? It's perhaps better rendered in English. Is it causing good that you burn with anger? Again, that feels super clunky. But I think it gets at a little bit more of kind of what is God asking? He's trying to figure out like, hey, Jonah, what's, what's the moral outcome of your anger? Are, are you happy with your, your anger? Do you like it? Do you like how it feels? Is it helping your becoming process? Jonah's famous for his moral evaluation of good and evil. The Ninevites are bad. They deserve to be punished. And so God here is saying, hey, how does, how does it feel to be that moral adjudicator? How does that sit inside of you? Again, I don't think God's trying to poke at Jonah. I think he's honestly trying to open things up for Jonah, to offer some relief to this torment of anger, to help him sense this connection of God that could provide a way, a way forward. Again, Jonah does not appreciate the question, and he just stonewalls God. There's no response. He just walks away and builds, builds a shelter. This is a nice little comic I found about uh, the, gift, the gift of stonewalling. Uh, who here has ever had that word kind of expressed to them in relationships of like, yeah, um, you can sometimes stonewall when we're having conflict. I remember when I got married, it was then maybe the first six months of getting, getting married to my wife, Karen. And we're both in a, a counselor's office, and we're talking about this perpetual conflict that we have in, in our marriage. And Karen says, well, it just feels like Dan sometimes like shuts down when we enter into conflict. Like you can see like the energy just kind of dissipate. And then he's off. Like it's just done. And the counselor turns to me. He's like, Dan, are you familiar with that term, um, stonewalling? And I picture this, a man building some stones. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, like I get it. But like, you know, I just feel like my capacity in times of conflict, it just, it's just gone. Like I feel, I feel flooded. And you know, I don't have that rage impulse, to let it out. I just kind of turn it all, turn it all off. And then the counselor uh, said to me, you know, when, when you shut down, that is also a power response. Because for the person who's opposite you, they now have no access to you. There's not a positive possibility, a negative possibility. There are no possibilities. The conversation is over. You know, there's that singer, Craig David, who has that famous song, I'm walking away from the troubles in my life. I appreciate it. It's a good song. It's catchy. I think we all want that, to walk away from our problems. The only part that's hard is that it's not possible. You can't just leave a problem. You just will carry it dragging behind you. The only way through our problems is to walk through them and to figure out how we're going to process this stuff. Jonah doesn't like what he sees, so he just shuts down, turns off the lights, and says, all right, I will choose the exit option. I no longer want to be part of this conversation. The hard part that I think that we could appreciate from Jonah's position here is when you're in places of conflict, it's easy to see what you think is right, to see your own perspective being reinforced. 
you know, we tend to see what we want to see when we're in places of conflict. Where I think the question that often breaks us out of conflict patterns, out of a stonewalling posture, is what am I not seeing here? If you're in a conflict with somebody else, that's a great question to ask them. Hey, what do you think I'm not seeing in this situation? What do you think I'm not appreciating here? It, it just shifts it from kind of, it's A, it's B, it's A, it's B, to, hey, what are we not seeing together? Well, let's try and figure out how we can move through this as a group. The, the sad news for, for Jonah is that after all this moving, running away from God, having three nights in his, uh, his fish hotel, uh, going to Jonah, going, go, Jonah going to Nineveh, all of this movement doesn't change his internal world. He's still kind of a grumpy, angry, pouty guy. And just sits there on the hill watching Nineveh, waiting to see, you know what, they all turn to God. It's not going to last. Give them one week. Those violent folks will turn violent again. And then, I bet you, God's going to smite them. They maybe had a good week, but the wrath is coming. Let's just wait for it. Can they hold on to this repentance? You know what? They didn't deserve forgiveness in the first place. And sure enough, their day is it's right at hand. I can't wait for it. You can, you can feel Jonah's anticipation. I'm looking forward to their destruction. These baddies, they deserve it. I see it coming. And the implication is, God, I hope you learn from this mistake that your mercy on these people of wickedness doesn't have your desired effect. People just kind of go back to their old ways and revert and don't change. And yet, I will see now in part two, God's cooling mercy keeps coming to Jonah. God never says at any point in this whole drawn out, you know, emotional battle, like, all right, Jonah, if you want space, you've got space. Do your own thing. God keeps coming again and again, gently, creatively, with a new way to try and have a cooling effect on this hot-headed, hot-tempered man. Okay, so the first bit there was about Jonah's mad prayer, how he prays angry, this battle of self-disclosures. Now it's going to depart to the, the maddening prayer, where God provides an illustration that maybe doesn't quite provide immediate coolness for, for Jonah. Here's the text. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. They made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. I, I'm a very pale man, and so I can, I can appreciate Jonah's sun sensitivity. Like with that scorching heat, like when like all your energy is just sapped, you think, man, I'm not going to make it. I, I get you. You want, that, you want that kind of defense mechanism. I used to live for a while in Dubai, and Dubai had an official policy that if it's ever... 
40 degrees Celsius, work outside, forced work, uh, is forbidden. So the official policy was that it was never 40 degrees. <laughs> it was always 39 degrees today in Dubai. It's like, well, my temperature says 45. Huh, that's interesting. It's like, well, we don't want to stop the workforce, so let's keep things, keep things going. But I think we can all appreciate that Jonah is desperate for some relief. He likes that he feels angry, but he can see that I don't want to set up life as just like angry forever. A little bit of comfort feels pretty good. And maybe even allows him to kind of, you know, direct his anger even more, more efficiently. This is an odd second miracle for Jonah. The first time a, a fish swallows him up and then spews him out of land. This second miracle is, it's just strange. A plant just grows incredibly quickly and provides this leafy shade for, for Jonah. We don't know what kind of structure he built to try and enjoy his apocalypse view over uh, Nineveh, but apparently it wasn't a great shelter in that, you know, it didn't quite shield all the, the sun's energy. And so God, in his compassion, allows this super plant to sprout up overnight and to give this leafy comfort uh, for Jonah. He loves it. Remember that, that little bit that Jonah said back to the sailors in chapter 1? I worship the God of land and sea. It's a bit of a hint. Double miracle. He'll be rescued on the land and in the sea by, by a plant and by, by a fish. But sure enough, this little uh, shade plant doesn't, doesn't last. It comes up quick and it goes down quick. And when it dies, there's just more anger in Jonah. He doesn't see God's mercy as offering him anything sustaining. They're, they're temporary, short-lived measures. But they're actually meant to be that way. When, when God offers the fish, it's not a permanent mercy for Jonah. Hey, Jonah, now you can live in a fish. Welcome to your, your new home. I hope it's great. It's meant to move you from one place to another. When the, when the shade of the plant comes over Jonah, Again, it's not a permanent home for Jonah, saying, I hope you, you enjoy your new Airbnb here. Um, you know, the rent is good, and the view is nice. Stay here as long as you want. It's meant to move him. A lot of our anger at God's short-lived mercies is that we feel they're too brief. They should have been longer. We should have enjoyed it for more. Why didn't I stay healthy for longer? Why don't that relationship stay in a good place for longer? God's mercy doesn't just lock us into a place, but it, it helps us move to continue to engage, to continue to grow. So why, why this whole plant thing? The first time God says, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah just stonewalls. So God says, all right, let's try an object lesson. Let's try the plant thing. He says this after the plant lives and dies. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, says Jonah, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord says, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Wish there are more than 120,000 people 
who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. There's a nice little kind of a subtle dig in this text. So remember, Assyria is, like where Nineveh is the capital, is the, the big bad empire. You know, it squashes the little guys like, like Israel. And Assyria's self-concept was that they were a cosmic tree, that they provided this great shade for the world to come and live under the tree of life, which is Assyria. In this little metaphor, God's kind of hinting, you know the great tree of life Assyria? It's kind of like a weed. That's kind of how I see it. Like a little sprouting up, a little leafy thing. It's around for a while, and then it goes. These massive empires that seem so great and so foreboding to us are like weeds in the mind, mind of God. It's kind of a playful dig at Assyria's own, own power. Again, God's question to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plan? He's not trying to, you know, make Jonah feel bad about the anger, but probing it. What, what good is arising in you out of the anger about the plan? Where is that going in you? Where is that being directed? The hint kind of for Jonah is, hey, what did you do for that plant? Nothing. Did you plant it? Are you responsible for its growth? Did you nurture it? No. You did nothing. But take on a creator perspective for a while. What would it mean for someone who were to plant something, to nurture something, to see it blossom and grow? Do you think that the, the creator can easily just say, I uproot this thing and it's destroyed. The implication, no. God is our creator of those who are good and of those who are evil. Why is he so long in the nose? As a creator, he delights in his people, even as they perform in good ways and in bad ways. It's a bit of a downer for Jonah, and maybe for a lot of us in Christian faith. Because of God's mercy, evil is going to stick around. It's not just going away today or tomorrow. Because God longs to see people drawn to repentance. He's long in the nose. He's slow to get angry. If you ever have you know, little kids around you who kind of, you know, see like the uh, proportion for dessert time and say, hey, this is not fair. You know, the kids are probably right. You know, the slices of cake maybe aren't quite even. You know, the allotment of who gets what is not always fair. And one of the biggest critiques about God is, God, you're not fair. The good guys, they suffer. And the bad guys, they have it easy. Your whole system here is messed up. It doesn't pay to be faithful. In fact, it pays. It's a reward to kind of ignore your ways, to live in the way of Nineveh. And in the end, maybe you'll just have mercy anyways. A little while ago, I was on a, a tour of the Holy Land and went to the, um, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a really hard experience as you kind of see all these stories of survivors. And uh, there was one uh, survivor who wrote, I, I cannot believe in a God who would allow this to happen to people. 
It's not possible. If there is a God in the world, then the Holocaust cannot be. And I think emotionally, we can get that. If, if God is good, wouldn't you just stop the things that are bad? Not just in our own personal lives, but everywhere. Like, stop it, God. Make things right. God's mercy is sometimes just really awkward. There's a, a story that I, I heard. Um, my wife is from South Africa, and South Africa kind of went ahead of Canada with the whole truth and reconciliation commission idea of when you've had massive atrocities, how do you try and move forward as, as a nation? And one story, which has always stood out in my mind, um, was about a woman who's, who's there at the, the TRC commission. There's a police officer who's been drawn into the room with charges. His name is uh, Officer Vandebroek. And he acknowledges that he's involved in the deaths of some people uh, in the area. And one woman is in the room, and he confesses to being a part of the death of her son. At the time, her son was 18 years old, and Officer Vandebroek and others shot him at point-blank rage and then burned his body. After killing his, her 18-year-old son, eight years later, DeBrook returned to her house and seized her husband. DeBrook set up a wood pile, bound her husband, poured gasoline over his body, and as he burned her husband, her husband said to her through the flames, forgive them. Now... It's the Brooks Judgment Day. He's there in the courtroom. The commission is there observing and hearing these stories. And they turn to this old woman and say, What do you want us to do with Officer DeBrook? She says, I want three things. First, I want DeBrook to take me to the place where he burned my husband's body. I want to have a proper burial for my husband. Second, Officer DeBrook stole away my family. So twice a month, I want him to come to the ghetto, to my house, to become my family, and allow me to be a mother to him. And third, I would like Officer DeBrook to know that he is forgiven by God, and that I forgive him too. I would like someone to lead me to him now so I can embrace him so he might know that my forgiveness is real. She walked across the room and DeBrook fainted. And then the courtroom apparently sang together Amazing Grace as this woman goes over to Van Brook's body in kindness. It's a deeply uncomfortable story of mercy. And you think, wait, there's got to be something done that punishes that behavior. Like, where, where is justice that speaks out to that kind of atrocity? The scandal of Christian faith is that we, we hold up a, a picture of all the world's violence, of all the world's evil, 
And here we hear a voice that says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is perhaps the, the heart of what it means to be in Christ, that we forgive enemies, that we show mercy to the people who don't deserve it, that we see a, a grace offered us from heaven and think, how can I not offer the same? There's a theologian named Walter Wink who says that, think about people in your life you find deeply annoying. Maybe they're even toxic people. People like who destroy your picture of a good life. Maybe they're your enemies. Take a paper and write down the things that you hate about them. The character traits that you despise in that person. Make a thorough list. And then stop. Pray. Recognize God's presence with you in that moment. And then line by line, go through that list and say, have I myself ever been in a similar place where I have offered that sort of trait to the world? That is the Jonah crisis, where the baddies are all in front of you. All their list of things they've done wrong, the, the hurts they've offered to you, and this mercy that's juxtaposed. What do you do with it? The whole book ends abruptly with this question. It's meant to not kind of uh, have us ask, what, what happened to Jonah? Like, did he turn towards God? Did he too repent? Um, did he stay angry? This book is not about Jonah. It's about us. We're, we're meant to see ourselves in the story. And the whole joke of the book ends up on us. What are we supposed to do with a deeply uncomfortable mercy of God? Where our, our enemies are absolved. Every year in the Jewish tradition, on the Day of Atonement, People read the story of Jonah out loud together. Why is that? To try and practice forgiveness for neighbors, for self, for the world. Because forgiveness is at the very heart of God. Christ says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Here we gather together in the, the shade of the cross. That when we're hot with anger, when life feels out of balance, when things are not fair, we, we come to a place where mercy is stretched out and displayed. And we hear a voice say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Perhaps the greatest thing Christians can do is love our enemies. To show mercy to those who don't deserve it. That we become a community who just keeps practicing deep forgiveness. The awkwardness of a mercy doesn't feel appropriate or feel fair. Sometimes we pray in really mad ways. 
Sometimes prayer itself can feel like it's a maddening experience, making us more frustrated. But the whole point of it all is to to lead us into an experience of God's mercy that can change our perspective, make us new, and give us life. What would be your your temperature check today? You know, do you feel your have some hot points with anger? And might God cool you off with the experience of his mercy? Let's pray together. Jesus, we would welcome your persistence in mercy today. That your ability to rescue and your ability to offer comfort would be expressed in our own lives. We would receive your your cooling mercy that in our, our hot moments, you would interact with us. You would provoke us with helpful questions to discern our right from our left. Amidst the, the dark emotions that we hold, Jesus, help us to embrace forgiveness and to encounter your story of mercy. For we pray in your name. Amen.